It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The New Statesman. Hello, and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This is an episode we like to call You Ask Us, and today it's a polling special. I'm Anoush Shekelian, Britain editor of The New Statesman. Thanks so much to all of you who have submitted questions for this episode. We love hearing from you. There's a link to the question form in the show notes, or you can leave a reply on Spotify or a comment on YouTube if you want to get in touch. This week, we're doing something a little different. It seems that lots of you love hearing from our polling expert, Ben Walker, and we've had loads of questions addressed specifically to him. So I'm pleased to say that Ben is joining me down the line from Chester, and I have a bunch of questions for him that you've sent in. We're going to get through as many as we can. Hello, Ben. Hello, thank you for having me. So our first question is from a YouTube user, Anthony Sullivan 3238 He asks, what impact is tactical voting going to have at the next election? Will the various online tactical voting sites help Labour to a big victory? Now, I know, Ben, that you often say that your model doesn't factor in tactical voting and that might sometimes be underplaying Labour's success in some areas. What will tactical voting do? How about this? Simple answer, quick answer, It'll, a few dozen seats will change hands as a consequence of tactical voting. Let's rewind back to 1997, Tony Blair's Labour landslide, and he pulled away with 400 and something seats with 40 something percent of the vote. And by the way, just remind, remind yourselves, Tony Blair's Labour Party underperforms the polls. He did worse than the polls, but mind you, the polls were showing Labour on like 50 something percent. Anyway, Tony Blair came away with 400 and something seats, and of those, about 10 to 20, according to analysis at the time, was a consequence of people who were traditionally Lib Dem or traditionally for another party, a nationalist party, going to the Labour Party to beat the Tories. And on the inverse, I think almost majority of the Lib Dem seats, it was Labour voters moving to the Lib Dems tactically to beat the Tories that actually won it through there. So in, in historic terms, a few dozen seats change hands. At the next election, we could expect the same. And I had a go. I had a go at this about, God, what, well, it's 2024 now. I did this two years ago, trying to measure the impacts of tactical voting. And it's similar now. If you assume that everyone who is prompted with the question, imagine this race was a tight fight between the Conservatives and, insert, Labour, Lib Dem, Green, whatever, the willingness from Lib Dem voters, Labour voters, Green voters to vote tactically is pretty significant. In the case of Labour voters, it's like half the Labour vote is willing to go to the Lib Dems. The other half really isn't. Let's not forget the coalition years do still sit high in the mind of Labour activists and indeed a great many Labour voters. Lib Dem voters, meanwhile, are it's not it's more than 50%. I think it's like between 70 to 80% are willing to countenance voting for a Labour candidate in a Labour v Tory fight. Now, obviously that 
benefits progressive parties and it will benefit progressive parties more than it will benefit right-wing parties. But there is something to consider, which is that reform apparently exists. We don't know by how much. The polls say they're up around about 8, 9, 10%. I have serious doubts about that for reasons I've explained before. But, you know, between 30 and 50% of present reform voters say they might switch to the Conservatives. So when it comes to tactical voting, the summary is this. Disproportionately, it will benefit the progressive parties. It will probably benefit Labour. In seat terms, it'll probably change around a few dozen seats, so 20, 30, 40 seats, which is that's pretty significant, especially when you consider everyone's assuming the polls will narrow significantly soon. We don't know that for certain, but if they do, that means just add 40-something seats to the Labour and Liberal columns. And then you also need to consider that reform vote may also vote tactically too when they're squeezed in lab recon fights because reform voters are treat them as very apathetic unlikely to engage with the democratic process. But when they do, they absolutely despise the Labour Party and they're quite also disliking of the Conservatives. So in Labour v Tory fights, of those that can be squeezed, they probably will move wholesale to the Conservatives. I tried to model this for Harrogate and Knaresborough, where I'm from in, in Yorkshire. And what I found was that standard polls, national polls say it was Conservative 37, Liberal 35, Labour 25. Right, And that's no tactical voting for whatsoever. Once you account for tactical voting, you see the Tory share go up two points, and then you see the Liberal Democrat share go up by 10 to 12 points. So yes, net benefit to the progressive parties, but not entirely to the progressive parties. Like I said at the start, 20, 30, 40 seats will change hands as a consequence of tactical voting. Probably. Okay, great. For any of our listeners who don't know, Ben runs State of the Nation, the New Statesman's excellent microsite reporting specifically on polling data analysis. And our next question is from Scott, who asks, when will State of the Nation reflect the new constituency boundaries? And what impact do you see these boundaries having on the parties? The new boundaries aren't going to change the makeup that much. I've had in my own go at Notionals how these boundaries would have voted the last election. Rallings and Thrasher, much more reputable academics than I have also had a go. And the net change really is, you know, the Conservatives net around about five to 10 seats more, Labour lose around about five or so seats, Liberal Democrats lose about, I think, one or two. I think it's the Caithness, Sutherland and Easter Ross in Scotland that, that does go Scottish nationalist there. The, the changes are pretty negligible because I think also what with the new boundaries, you have a lot more more marginals, a lot more battlegrounds, a lot more things to, to play with there. And, and so, so the net change isn't that big. It's just change in the boundaries is pretty significant in a great many places. So bear this in mind. The boundaries we've been fighting on since 2010 to 2019 were based on 2005 data. So where you lived in 2005, that's what it was based on. Population to change significantly. You have a hell of a lot more people living around Cambridge. You have a hell of a lot more people living in Hertfordshire, Buckinghamshire, a bit more in Kent. And so you're seeing more seats there. And what used to be sweeping large conservative sheets have become geographically smaller. And as a consequence, those urban areas play a greater part of the pie of electoral competition. I hope that makes sense there. And so, yeah, more marginals, more battlegrounds in that respect. And like I say, the new seats in the south of England, in the home counties, in the commuter belts, will mean more opportunities for the Liberal Democrats and in some certain cases, the Labour Party to create new targets. It is not out of the realms of possibility 
that there will be multiple Liberal Democrat MPs in Surrey, for instance, and maybe one, two, or even three in Hertfordshire. It's, it's, it's you know, changing times. No, commuters have moved around, and commuters, by the way, are the, the, the perhaps the demographic showing the largest swing from Conservative to Labour. So it's the outskirts of cities, outskirts of towns that are, that are seeing the biggest shifts right now. And um, that's where these new geographically tight constituencies are being built. After the break, we have questions for Ben about voter brand loyalty and what to expect for the Greens in the next election. If you'd like to listen to the New Statesman podcast ad-free, you can do so by subscribing to the New Statesman and listening via the New Statesman app. Subscribe from as little as £1 a week at the link in the show notes and download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So our next question for you, Ben, is from Gary Foltzman. Why have voters become less brand loyal than in the past, as per your graphs? And how will this affect the party's manifestos and campaigns? Why has it happened when the opposite has happened in the US? I would disagree with Gary's assumption that the opposite has happened in the USA. It's just that in the USA, people are divided into Republican-Democrat, but it's not Republican loyal, it's not Democrat loyal, it's person loyal, it's cult loyal. Consider this in America. When our grandparents were alive, a lot of them would register as a Republican or register as a Democrat. It was, you know, widespread. It was huge. That doesn't happen as much anymore. You're seeing a lot more registered independents, i.e. middle ground people. And actually, they are middle ground. They do swing between Republican, Democrat at various elections. I would just say it's more cult loyal, more personality led there. A lot of it is, of course, so-called MAGA Republicans, Trump loyalists. They're very apathetic people. They have no trust in anything but the people who say you, you, you have nothing to trust. That makes sense. And so there's not much loyalty there except to the sensational or the innuendo. In Britain, why are we less brand loyal? I think it started in the 1990s. I think, to be honest, if you want to get philosophical, you can say it's a consequence of our whole economic order. The more individualistic we become, the less loyal to classes we are, the less loyal to communities we are, the more socially mobile we are, the more we think about ourselves as opposed to our community. Those who stay, who are born somewhere and die somewhere, tend to stick with one party till death do they part. Now, from the 90s, from New Labour, from Tony Blair, that did start to change, that did start to decline. What happened was basically disappointing parties, parties who disappointed the electorates, okay? A lot of the old Labour base from 1997. If you looked at those who voted Labour in 1997 and you asked them, how have you voted since? It's ridiculously diverse. You'd see about 20% of them have considered who have gone as far as voting UKIP, around about 30-40% of them went as far as voting Leave in the EU referendum. I think it's higher, actually, when you just exclude the 97 Labour voters. And a lot of them now are either not voting altogether or went to Boris Johnson's Conservatives. We've got to remember that you know you may vote Labour, but you are part of a very diverse coalition. You are a broad church. It's not just the Labour Party's own 
factions of activists who descend upon Liverpool every year for, for a little bit of civil war. It, it, it is voters who are diverse as well. And so a lot of them have grown disappointed by parties. A lot of them have considered alternatives. A lot of them have prioritized immigration as a voter motivating issue in the early 2010s. And I'll be honest, I think Labour and the Conservatives not providing both the proper sound bites, both the proper solutions, a sense that they have control really did propel a lot of them elsewhere. So disappointing politics sends you further afield. The chaos, the political instability, if you want to call it that, of the past five to 10 years has moved people everywhere. You've had Labour voters go green, Liberal Democrat, then come back for Jeremy Corbyn in 2019 or Keir Starmer today. You had Conservative voters and Labour voters go to UKIP, go to apathy. Some of them went to the BNP once upon a time. They all went for leave. And then they thought the Labour Party in 2017, they weren't making that much noise about Brexit. They're a healthy option. Then, of course, Labour comes out for its own, tries to stake out a claim on Brexit. Understandably, of course, politics was different. And they lose a lot of voters as a consequence. It's a long series of disappointments. It's a long series of trying new parties, trying different brands. And as a consequence, people aren't, yeah, they're not as loyal as they used to be. What that does mean is a lot of our traditional marginals, the Yorkshire Coalfields, the Derbyshire, Nottinghamshire line, that very horizontal belt, you have the Stoke-on-Trent and so on and so forth, that used to be safe as houses Labour, who were quite alienated from Tony Blair's new Labour, who've then gone on to entertain other parties. They will swing back to Starmer's Labour by a pretty hefty margin at the next election, probably, if we can't, of course, trust the polls. But that doesn't mean they're going to be returning our safe Labour seats. What they are is they're just becoming increasingly swingy. There are more and more seats, I can imagine, where you'll see the Tory vote fall by 20 and the Labour vote rise by 10. And you'll probably see those changes being quite dramatic for the foreseeable future. It's a saying by the Liberal Democrats every time they win a council by-election, no seat is a safe seat. Increasingly, that is becoming the case. No seat, well, fewer and fewer seats are becoming safe seats. And now we have a question from Leo Glamberini. The recent mega poll by YouGov, which we've actually spoken about on a previous episode of the podcast, saw the Greens just a couple of percentage points behind Labour in Bristol Central. Could Labour's behaviour push people to the left and help Greens get a second seat? And then we also have another question from Dan on the Greens, so I'm going to wrap these ones together. With the Greens gaining hundreds of rural councillors and control of a council in 2023, perhaps capitalising on dissatisfaction with both Tories and Labour, might we see a few new Green MPs soon? So both are asking questions about whether or not we might see more Green MPs. And Leo has picked up on the Greens' success in Bristol, which is a Labour city. And Dan has picked up on the Greens' success in Tory rural areas. And actually, I, I wrote a piece on this recently after the Greens won their first ever council majority in mid-Suffolk. And they became the largest party in Lewis and East Hertfordshire as well, where the Conservatives collapsed. So that was all Greens winning Conservative council seats. But in those same elections, the locals last year, the Greens fell back in Brighton and York. And in May, three quarters of their record gains of council seats were from the Tories. So it's quite interesting that they've got a bit of an identity crisis. Which part of the country are they actually pitching to? And they do have two leaders as well, co-leaders, Adrian Ramsey, who's running for a new constituency, Waveney Valley, which covers much of mid-Suffolk. So that's Tory areas in rural England. And then Carla Denyer is the candidate in Bristol West, which is a top target seat, a Labour city. So, Ben, where are we going to see, if we are going to see new Green MPs, where are they going to be 
standing. Let's just go to the YouGov MRP poll. MRP, of course, is quite a sophisticated way of modelling elections, and it takes the voting intention of a hell of a lot of demographics, drills them down by demographic and says, ah, Bristol Central has a lot of young people of this ilk, a lot of them indicating they may vote green. Let's look at the history of the seat. Let's try and make a sort of forecast projection there. And what we saw in Bristol Central, formerly Bristol West, is a pretty tight race. I think it was 42% Labour, 38% Green. And then you also had in a seat like Waveney Valley, however, the Conservatives far out ahead, Labour second, and the Greens third. I think MRP projections are good in theory. In a midterm parliament, they're a good theoretical projection, like the Britain Predict model. But when it comes to general elections, they become a hell of a lot more accurate because you see those regional, local variations, those local campaigns begin to pick up and begin to work. I think in the case of Bristol Central, we do need to just be that little bit careful because, like I say, this forecast is quite theoretical. It doesn't account for supposedly personalities. And we don't know to what extent in constituency fights the personality of the incumbent MP holds what, how strong it is. Thangam Debonair is the incumbent MP for Bristol West, soon to be Bristol Central. And every Labour activist and organiser I speak to, I ask them, like, Bristol, you think you're in trouble? And they say, no. Either Labour are in for a huge shock, or rather this MRP is picking up what is the demographic intention of these voters, but not the actual. Thangam Debonair allegedly, or perhaps probably, has a strong personal vote. We don't know if that's going to be borne out in reality. But nevertheless... Bristol as a demographic seat is very much trending green. In local council elections, which is when the whole city council goes up for grabs, the wards, the neighbourhoods which make up Bristol Central, overwhelmingly vote in green councillors. It's pretty sizable, it's pretty significant. But I would just note that every time UKIP in low turnout local elections stormed it in Boston and Skegness, Great Yarmouth, even Waveney, which is nearby to Waveney Valley, which the Greens are targeting, they stormed it, they topped the poll, they beat the Conservatives in all these seats, Castle Point, Thurrock, Basildon. They never won them in high turnout parliamentary elections. And that's the thing. In low turnout elections, the angry, the more, mo- the more motivated by sending a message, are more likely to turn out. In the high turnout general elections, you're getting the people who only pay five minutes worth of attention to politics a week. Okay, And a lot of them aren't perhaps as enthused by the Greens as high attention voters are. So I just bear that in mind. Nevertheless, are we going to see some green MPs in the future? I expect the minute we get a Labour government is the minute that Labour coalition of voters who are coming together to kick the Conservatives out, to get Labour in, they may fracture. They may go further afield. And I really do think Liberal Democrats, they're quite cleaning up in a number of Conservative shires. I think they could come back in a certain way in some Labour cities. They already are in Hull. They're trying something else elsewhere. I think the Greens could do the same in certain cities. Not all, not ever. Just remember this as well. A lot of the um, radical left membership of the Labour Party, they've thought the Greens are their new natural home. And then some of them got shocked and disappointed when certain Green politicians called out Jeremy Corbyn for anti-Semitism or whatever. But the Green appeal isn't just the left of the Labour Party. It's environmentalist conservatives. It's socially liberal, centrist voters, basically. The, The appeal of the Greens is very broad. And I don't think that's recognized by we who commentate, we who opine, we who analyze. And I don't think the activists recognize it yet either. They are, they, they, they've got a lot to learn about their vote. And it just won't be the types of the Bristols and the Hackneys and the Islingtons where they'll have support. Although the MRP 
that shows the Greens doing well in Bristol doesn't show them doing well in Waveney Valley. I think it's Waveney Valley where they'll have more potentially. I think it's I think it's those rural shires where the Liberal Democrats and Labour don't have strength, organisation, and it's there that the Greens can come through and strike gold. But those types of seats are more in Conservative seats than Labour. So I think lots of opportunity for the Greens in the future. Thanks so much to everyone who submitted questions and thanks so much, Ben, for that marathon session. We do read all your questions, so keep them coming in. If you'd like to send us a question, you can go to newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleague, Ben Walker. On Monday, we're bringing you a special audio long read episode. Will Dunn reads Stuart McGurk's brilliant investigative report to catch a catfish about the UK's leading romance fraud specialist. Nicely timed for Valentine's Day. Don't miss it. Be sure to follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. This episode was produced by Chris Stone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.